Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to take a brief moment to recommend a new book that I have written titled The Poetic Edda, A Study Guide. The Poetic Edda is a crucial source for Norse mythology that has been discussed in great detail across many different episodes of this podcast. And right now, I just wanted to read you an excerpt from my book, The Poetic Edda, A Study Guide. The Poetic Edda comprises a mythology of gods and their human heroes who are driven by honor, lust, and wisdom, always seeking power and always settling a new dispute. The Edda begins with resourceful creator gods crafting the universe out of a giant's corpse and a powerful cirrus imparting details about the inevitable chaos of Ragnarok. This is followed by Odin's words of wisdom in a plethora of other poems describing the High One's never-ending quest for knowledge. The adventures of Thor and the gods' unsavory encounter with Loki and Sue, leading up to the death of Baldur and the first signs of Ragnarok. Poems about Helgi, Sigurth, and other members of the powerful Volsung family comprise an excessive amount of blood feuds. The slaying of Fafnir and the ownership of the dragon's horde creates an entirely new story amidst growing envy and constant betrayal. The Poetic Edda, a study guide, is an exceptional guide to the myths and legends of the medieval Norse. And of course, you can find my book, The Poetic Edda, a study guide, on Amazon.com or in the description of this episode. Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. The Vikings are well known for their violent raids and military conquests, but they also had a well-organized system for political decision-making, legal cases, and conflict resolution. Until very recently, Viking assembly sites were virtually unknown apart from a select few, such as the famous Thingvellir in Iceland. My guest today is Dr. Alexandra Sandmark, the author of a new book about Viking assembly sites titled Viking Law and Order, Places and Rituals of Assembly in the Medieval North. Apart from being the author of this book, Dr. Sandmark is a reader in medieval archaeology at the Center for Nordic Studies at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. Dr. Alexandra Sandmark, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, and I'm so excited to talk about your new book, Viking Law and Order, on the podcast today. Uh, in your book, you talk a great deal about sort of the assemblies, this well-organized system that the Vikings had for decision-making and conflict resolution and uh, so on and so forth. But before we get into the actual assembly sites, what do we mean when we say this well-organized system for decision-making? Well, uh, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a big question. Um, well, we're thinking about if you think of it, a modern court system, in, in a sense, it, it is that, but in a sort of simplified form. So you can think of it as a kingdom or a kingdom even being in formation that's divided into uh, legal districts. And they can, of course, be very loose in terms of, of geography, but they do seem to have some, some sense of, of who belonged to a particular law area. Each district would have had a law which, of course, would have been in oral form to start off. And then as time went on, these laws were you know, written down. Um, and uh, within each district, there would have been a number of sites, assembly sites, thing sites, 
where people met in order to resolve conflict. And there would have been a hierarchy of assemblies as well. So there was been one assembly site within a district that you know would have been more important and would have had been used for larger gatherings. I mean, in my book, I call these top-level assemblies um, just to show that you know they are for, for the for the district as a whole. And then each district would have been divided into smaller areas, uh, and they would also have had their own assembly sites. So this is something that's ongoing all the time, and conflicts. Um, that could not resolve at the local level, and they can then be taken up to the the top level. And of course, one thing to to bear in mind is just just like today, that cases did not automatically go to the assembly to be resolved. The assembly was seen as sort of the ultimate solution. You know, if you cannot resolve a conflict in any normal way, then you take it to the assembly. It's like you know, you don't take somebody to court just because you fancy. You know, it just it's. It's quite a long process before you get to that point. Certainly. Now, is this this concept of conflict resolution something unique to the medieval Norse? Is this something that we see in other contemporary cultures during the Middle Ages? Well, yes, absolutely. I, I would say that conflict resolution is something that we see in every society. Every society needs that in order to function. Otherwise, you know, there would be wars all the time. Uh, so, in order to prevent armed conflict, we need um, methods to resolve conflict. So that's something that we can see in any anthropological study um, of societies. And of course, in modern societies, we have it. Every society has it, but in a different form. So it might be difficult to recognize. And um, a lot of the time, if you're thinking about societies that don't really have a written culture, they will have um, oral laws or norms uh, and religion is all bound up into this. And within that, um, they have a very strict, um, strict ways of of resolving conflict. So, th- in a sense, that's something that we can see um, everywhere. If you're thinking about the the Middle Ages, there has been, you know, is, as you know from my book about Britain, that you know, we know that the Vikings had this system of, of assembly, but it hasn't really been studied in, in great detail before. But because it's mentioned in in sagas and in other written sources, it's had perhaps more has received more attention than perhaps in other you know, medieval societies, thinking about early medieval uh, Germany, for example, um, and Saxon England. Um, it's all there, and they had very similar systems of, of resolving conf- conflicts. Uh, if you look at um, early medieval laws from Francia, for example, we can see a very similar system there in place there, um, and they also had a system of, of outdoor assembly sites, just like we can see in Scandinavia, and it's the same in Anglo-Saxon England, for example. So uh, in a sense, they would have all had been aware of this idea of having oral law and outdoor meetings to resolve conflict uh, all across uh, Europe at this point in time. Interesting. That's very interesting. And this is something that we see in Old Norse literature as well, right? Sagas and and poems and Mm -hmm. so forth. Absolutely, that's right. I mean, the things, as in the assemblies, they are mentioned in, in many sagas. They don't, don't get, you know, maybe the same attention as the sort of blood feuds and, and the killing and everything, because perhaps, you know, it's not necessarily as interesting and as dramatic. But the assemblies are, are sort of constant. They're always there, even if they're a lot of time are sort of mentioned in, in passing. You know, they're not writing a, a history of or, or a description of their society. 
so they don't feel the need perhaps to explain how this system worked. Or we can, you know, by reading saga descriptions, we can really get some, you know, glimpses of, of how this worked in, in practice. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, the laws as well, um, which, you know, in terms of the time when they were written down are sort of contemporary with the, uh, the sagas. And it's very clear that these written laws have lots of text and lots of, of elements that are much, much older uh, than, you know, 13th century. So we can work with the laws in particular and sort of work backwards and see which elements are probably uh, applied in the Viking Age as well. And in that sense, get a, a better feeling for what, what laws were practiced in the Viking Age. And for those who haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, are we dealing with, when talking about Norse assembly sites, are we dealing with sort of the later years of the Viking Age when proper kingdoms and political systems were in place? No, we're talking, you know, early Viking Age. And I would say that, you know, this system, as I said, because it's a system for conflict resolution, I don't see that as something that's new uh, in the Viking Age. I see that's, you know, what they had in the Viking Age when they had, you know, the term thing for it, for example. I mean, that's something that was in use in the Viking Age and probably earlier. We don't know. But um, the word thing, um, if you speak to, to linguists and philologists, you know, they, they are, you know, tracing it back to the early Iron Age. Um, so around sort of uh, the first century AD, whether, you know, that's a term that they used at that point in time doesn't really matter. But the fact is that this system for resolving conflict does go back. It predates the Viking Age, uh, no question. But of course, we can see that as kingdoms get more organized and as royal power develops uh, and the kings kind of gradually take over this system. And that's easy to do when you have written law as well. Uh, and, and the kingdoms get much more formalized. And then the people on the ground, I would say, you know, they get less influence as the kings gradually take over. Interesting. Now, um, could you give us some of your favorite examples of assembly sites that we see throughout the Norse world and perhaps interesting examples of conflict resolution that sprung from these various sites? Right. Okay. Um, interesting question. In terms of sites, I mean, I, I have many, many favorites and they are same but different, shall we say. So in terms of, you know, what these sites look like, you know, I've been working very much with trying to identify sites in the landscapes as well. Um, so we can see that, for example, in, in, in Sweden, um, modern Sweden today, then there are, of course, certain key sites. You know, we have Gamla Uppsala, for example, which is, you know, obviously a fabulous and striking site in itself. Close by to by Gamla Uppsala, um, about 80 kilometers to the west, we have Arnonshögen, which, of course, is a site that I have excavated several times that and I'm still you know still have an ongoing project there so that's you know one of my favorite sites um as well they are fantastic in the sense that they have um lots of archaeological remains they have you know huge barrier mounds we can see that Arnonsherg is a really interesting site if you think about length of use and the tradition of gathering because it starts off around sort of 1-200 AD um, with lots of burnt remains, hearth remains. It looks like, you know, it's a big campsite where people have come together. And then gradually, you know, they start building barrier mounds and, you know, erect ship settings. 
as we move through the Iron Age um, and they have a remains of a, a very long row of wooden posts as well, a big monument that seems to have been changed over time and added on to over time. Our dates there span from, you know, about 200 AD up until about, you know, 1200 AD. So the sites, they change over time, but they are beautiful and, and striking. But then if you move west uh, and you start looking at, you know, the areas of, of expansion, then think about Lily, you mentioned in Iceland, is of course, one of the most beautiful and striking assembly sites. And, and a lot of the time, the, the assembly sites are in very beautiful places in the landscape or striking places so that they can be seen from afar. Um, so in Iceland, we don't have that same association with, with big barrier mounds that we see in Scandinavia in particular. But instead, you know, they erected booths um, that people stayed in during the meetings. And you can, you know, walk around at Thingvetler and you can see the, the booth remains and you can just experience the, the you know, absolutely the beauty uh, of this place. So, you know, those are some of my favorite sites. But when it then, the ne- talking about you, the next part of your question was about what cases were played out here. That's a tricky one um, because... And I think that is probably the one that where we do have, you know, Njal Saga, for example, they, they tell us about some cases there. Um, and Gamla Uppsala, we have, you know, little snippets from sagas, but not very much. Um, so uh, that's where I think where we have sort of the biggest disconnect, perhaps. I can envisage sort of the rituals that took place at these sites. Um, but I don't have so many legal cases that I can link to a particular site. There are a few, but not that's that's where the biggest disconnect I would say between the archaeological material and the written sources. Fascinating. Well, and you mentioned sort of the ritualized usages of these sites, but you know, in your book, you talk about the symbolic meaning of these assembly sites and various rituals that came along with them. Apart from their obviously functional usages as places of conflict resolution, what were the additional significance of these assembly sites? Well, because they are places of conflict resolution, then of course they are places of peace where you cannot have armed conflict. And I think that's very, very important. So they are in terms of in in the law and also in the sagas, we can see very clearly um, that the assembly sites are places of peace where a thing peace applies. And it seems that um, this thing peace perhaps does not apply to these sites at all times, but when a meeting is in progress. And at that time, particular laws um, apply within the site. So that means that if you kill somebody you know, at the assembly site during a meeting, then you, uh, that person can be executed on the spot. You know, and that does really does not happen. Uh, it happens in a few other places, but it's extremely rare and just shows how severely they, they viewed um, that, you know, breaking the law in that way. So that means that the, it seems, and this we can sort of reconstruct from looking at the archaeology of the sites and looking at the written sources. Uh, um, you know, I haven't mentioned the poetic edda. But in there as well, there's a lot that can tell us about rituals at the assembly. So it does seem that, you know, it starts with a, a sort of procession um, setting out uh, the boundaries of the site and probably using the natural features and monuments that had been erected at the landscape. You know, I've mentioned, you know, this row of wooden posts, for example, at Onnensherg. And, you know, there are many other examples in the Viking Age of standing stones and rune stones, you know, also aligned and sort of a 
it's a linear monument and in that sense sort of um, delimiting the assembly sites. I think sort of walking round the boundaries in, in procession is something that happened and, and that sort of created the Think Peace. Then the meetings could start. And within that area of peace, that's where, you know, all everything should be resolved. And it's very clear that, you know, from saga examples that, you know, if people want to go and have a different kind of discussion um, that doesn't belong in the assembly, they say, well, you have to leave and, and go outside the assembly. Um, and that, you know, and that's the place to do that. And then you come back in here and, and then, the, you know, they can have the verdict, et cetera. So it's very, very ritualized and it's all very strict. And I think there were different areas where people knew their place and where they could be and not everybody would have had access to all parts of so now when discussing women during the Viking Age, that is a, indeed a very important topic. We know that women, when compared to contemporary medieval societies, had more rights, certainly, than, than obviously their contemporaries. Is this something, is this fact something that we, we can see in examples of legal cases when talking about the assembly sites of, of medieval Scandinavia? Well, yes, I think it's a, I think it's a very important topic and something that I have, you know, paid quite a lot of attention to um, because the assembly has been seen as a very male sphere. When it's described, if you, you know, pick up a, a book of the Viking Age and say, you know, what is the thing? And it says it's the assembly of all free men, it's the assembly of all the men. You know, it's, it's always thought of as a very male sphere. And uh, I don't think that's um, the case. We don't have so many actual legal cases, not from the Viking Age. We might have them from later on in time. And you can see even then actually women being active. But just looking at the, the legislation and see who could access the assembly, it's clear that um, in order to get access to the assembly, people needed to be landowners. So that's how, you know, that's how their democracy worked. And of course, most of the landowners were male, but they're also female landowners. And so they could then, in, in their role as landowners, also be, be present at the assembly. I think one reason why this has been played down as well is that if we look at um, the sagas and we compare this to the Icelandic law Gaugaus, the, the Grey Goose uh, law, they are, in a sense, they're very Christianized. And with Christianity come you know, these restrictions on women not to participate in the assembly and they, they, their lives get more limited by Christianity. So, and I think that's um, because people want to work with the saga material, you know, that is from Iceland, and compare it to the Icelandic law, then the view becomes very restricted. But if you start looking at the Norwegian laws, for example, that are, you know, very, very interesting, and very clearly from an earlier stage in legal development, you can see that the women have a much greater part to play. Uh, widows have a greater part to play. There's an expectation of women to take part in the assembly. So we can see that this, this changes over time. And I've been playing with numbers just trying to think how many, how many women were there in comparison to men. And, you know, I've been thinking perhaps up to 10%, but, you know, that's just sort of an educated guess for my part. It's very fascinating that, you know, when Christianity comes along, you sort of see the uh, progression in Scandinavian law changing seeing as women don't necessarily have all of the rights they did before um so 
Can you talk about sort of that change a little bit, that shift? Because I know you've done work on sort of the Christianization of Europe. So when Christianity comes to Scandinavia and Mm. Iceland as well, how does that sort of change the way that the laws had been practiced? It's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell, you know, because we we don't really have the exact sources to tell us that all, you know, all the laws that we have are actually Christian. So we need to just kind of untangle and see which bits aren't Christian and which bits are really, really old. Um, so, but in terms of, of women in, in general and, you know, law and religion is something that I see, you know, very, very closely tied together. And the assembly would have been, you know, a, a religious occasion as well. And in that sense, we can, you know, we know that women had a great part to play in religious rituals and cultic rituals. And in that sense, probably also in the legal sphere. And I just think that, you know, their roles became much more limited. Um, and what we can see if you compare the, the Norwegian and the Icelandic material, I mean, the Norwegian laws say that uh, a woman, you know, can rep- represent herself at the assembly, but she doesn't have to. So she could choose to be represented by a man if she wanted to, which probably depended on, you know, how old this person was and what kind of experience they had, etc. But they had the option if they were landowners to represent themselves. Whereas in Iceland, uh, you know, they don't really have that option. They, they can appear as witnesses, but they can't present their cases, uh, for example. Um, so in terms of public speaking and appearing at the assembly, um, you, you would have seen, you probably would have seen women being there, but actually taking an active part and speaking at the assembly, representing a case. I think you would, the numbers would have gone down uh, quite drastically with Christianization. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Alexandra Sandmark, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you on the podcast today. Now, rather than asking you one final question, is there anything more that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Something that as they read your book, they should keep in mind? Oh, I think about that one. We talked about some of my favorite. Well, yes, now I think. um, I would like to, to stress, I think, how how important these sites are. They're not just sort of blips in, in history. They are key points uh, in, in terms of place in our history. I mean, I've been describing some, some assembly sites, some of my favorite sites, um, and you know that they, they tend to have really long histories. I mentioned Arnold Hurg and also, you know, Gamla Uppsala, you know, they, they are long-lived sites and maybe are in use for about a thousand years or more. Um, they are the successful sites. Then we also have, you know, other sites that fall out of use that, you know, sometimes we know about them and sometimes we don't know about them. But these successful sites are really, really important because they, we can, we can trace them still today, uh, if you like. If you're thinking, let's take Gamla Uppsala uh, as an example. It's located about, you know, eight kilometers outside the town of Uppsala, which of course it's, you know, the, the seat of the, of the archbishop. Um, and the archbishop, first came to, to Gamla Uppsala. That's the place where they established, the church established themselves. And then Gamla Uppsala fell out of use because the, the waterways, the people could no longer travel there. And it was a place of trade and a place of assembly and a place of religious uh, meetings, both in, you know, in non-Christian times and in Christian times. Then you know, the landscape shifted, shifted a little and the, the town and the archbishop moved into what is Uppsala today. And of course, that's a, you know one of, of Sweden's uh, most important um, cities. And so many of these assembly sites, this pattern that I have just described, where you have a major assembly site that's been in use for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, 
is very often, and, and, and of course, these are top level assemblies for the whole law uh, district. Um, they are then uh, often, you know, very, very close to the um, town centre of a major medieval um, town, which is also an archbishopric. So you can you can trace the the places that are important today um, back to these assembly sites that you know were used in the Viking Age and probably you know also earlier in the Iron Age. So you know it's it's a long history. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Alexandra Sandmark, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. And for those of you listening, I will provide a link to Dr. Sandmark's book, Viking Law in Order, in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to learn more about the history of the Viking Age, visit my friends at Ancient History Encyclopedia and read their excellent array of articles pertaining to many aspects of Viking history at ancient.eu. And of course, you will find links to these articles in the description of this episode. 